Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when ITV showed the pilot episode of late 80s fantasy detective drama Beauty and the Beast, they didn't exactly help with the slow reveal build-ups of Vincent's face by introducing the ad breaks with the continuity slide with a close-up of his face. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is podcaster and writer Becky Dark. Becky, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. What am I up to and where can you find it? Blimey. You can find me at my own podcast, which I co-host with our joint friend, my bestie, Jill Nolan, where we go over the late 80s and 90s YA horror paperbacks that were published by Scholastic back in the day and we were all obsessed with in the playground. And we go over those one book as an episode. We don't do them super often because they are these huge epic episodes episodes that we go on for hours and hours and pepper in various sort of context clues about the year where the book came out where Jill does stuff about what was in the top 10 in the UK and I do stuff about the cinema box office so that is at Point Horror Pod and if you just want to find me and all of the other stuff that I have going on and my writing and stuff I am at Bunny Dark on all the socials. And we should also just highlight that you and Jill have recently done something that'll be of great interest to anyone who's heard the episode of this was Rich Littler from Scarfuck which is you've done a commentary on Comeback Lucy for the DVD. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Network approached us and because we do our podcast about sort of little old books that are usually about something spooky and aimed at kids and teens. Comeback Lucy was actually based on a novel. So they came to us to ask us to kind of do one of our podcast episodes as we generally normally would without quite so much swearing (laughs) (laughs) about the Comeback Lucy book. So yeah, that can now be found they did a beautiful DVD release of it just towards the end of last year the ITV show and part of that is a DVD extra of Jill and I chatting about the book which luckily because it could have been slightly awkward if we didn't like it but luckily we absolutely loved the book so we were able to sing its praises okay well for your first choice we've got something that hasn't really got very much at all to do with anything that you've just talked about or has it Thundering across the stars to save the universe from the monster minds. Jay searches for his father to unite the magic root and lead his lightning league to victory over the changing form of Sawboss. Wheeled warriors explode into battle. Lightning strikes. There's a power that comes from deep Okay, that very, very long and explanatory theme tune, it's almost as long and explanatory as the title of this show. So, Becky, what was Jason the Wheel Warriors? (laughs) 
Jace and the Wheel. I always used to think when I was a kid that it was Jason the Wheeled Warriors. But no, his name's Jace. Jace and the Wheeled Warriors. It was an animated show and it was sort of set in space. And there was Jace, who is our titular hero. And the Wheeled Warriors, it was like him and his sort of group of friends, as far as I remember it. And it was a bit sort of like space western. And each episode they would have, you know, adventures. But their key sort of nemesis were like these plants. They were like motorbikes, but made of plants in like diggers and like various machinery that you would expect to see on Earth. But they were like made of plants. This is how I remember it. Kind of like vines and stuff. It was a very odd show. And it was kind of like it was a little bit manga looking. And I've always been into that sort of look of stuff. And I just absolutely loved this show as a kid. But now I talk about it and nobody's ever heard of it. Well, what is going to be quite interesting here is I'm a couple of years older than you. When Jason the Weird Warriors was on, I was just about old enough to think I am too old for this. <laughs> My era was more sort of He-Man and the Master of the Universe and Transformers and I remember seeing Jason the Wheel Warriors and thinking, that's a bit childish that. I've been there and done that. Which is odd because when you look at it now, it's very sophisticated. It's got a very sort of adult storyline yeah. written by J. Michael Straczynski, yeah. which was a complete shock to me. It was a complete shock to me when I looked it up. I was like, oh my god, I'm way cooler than I thought I was. It's just Michael <laughs> and apparently, this is where it gets really interesting. It was made to tie in with Mattel's Wheeled Warriors toy line. I didn't really, I wasn't that familiar with these. Once I had a look at them, the whole point of them was that there were a series of vehicles, some belonging to the Monster Mine, some belonging to the Lightning League, which is Jace's mob. should also say it's J-A-Y-C, mm. which made it that bit cooler and hipper. But apparently the thing was you could mix and match any part of any of the vehicles with each other and make your own one and I'll be honest it looks like too much admin really. <laughs> it reminds me you saying that it reminds me of the dino bots of the transformer toys because I used to have a couple of those I was obsessed with dinosaurs as all children are and so the meeting point between dinosaurs and transformers was just too tantalizing to resist and I remember having like a purple and yellow triceratops that when you scooted him along the ground Sparks would come out of his mouth and this was, to me, like the absolute ultimate coolest thing that had ever happened. There's something about what you're saying about sort of interchanging bits between all of these different wheeled warriors that for some reason just reminds me of scooching this thing along and these sparks coming out of its mouth. I think possibly the reason though why, because the cartoon never really took off. I think over here, I think it was made in 1985. Originally in France, I think it was called Je sais le conquérant de Lumière. Ooh. And it was shown over over here on apparently it was Channel 4 I remembered it being ITV in the school holiday morning so maybe it was that for a bit mm. and then it went on to Channel 4 but neither that really took off nor the toy line and I think that's because if you watch the toys that made us on Netflix the episodes that deal with He-Man and Transformers you know they were basically toy adverts but that sort of happened by accident was that someone that had an idea with toys with a rebranded line someone that had an idea for a cartoon and they met almost by accident and somebody said oh yeah you're doing in that cartoon for us aren't you was I but <laughs> with this it was sort of a more cynical thing and I think because of that there's a kind of disconnect between the cartoon isn't really kind of selling toys it's doing its own thing I don't imagine anyone watching it and thinking 
oh, I wonder if I can get a vehicle with a Jace figure. No. Because it just doesn't seem to have that vibe. No, that is that is so true, actually. And I definitely never had any of the toys. Um, and I don't remember sort of like seeing them in Toys R Us or whatever and kind of, you know, longing for them as a kid. It's not one of those Mr. Frosty situations where all I ever wanted was a Jason the Wheeled Warriors toy and I never got one. I don't really remember that being a thing. But yeah, you're right. Like it was, like I say, I remember the kind of visuals of it and the, oh, it had an incredible theme tune as well. I was going to say, written by Shuki Levy, who did basically all the cartoon themes around this time. If you ever remember any of the go like, <laughs> this is the entire plot of the programme. That's basically a Shuki Levy theme It is you. the entire plot of the programme, yeah. That's what I needed. And also, apparently, there was a final episode written, a bit like the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon around this time, that they never made. Oh. Because there was this ongoing storyline, and it was never resolved. Oh, and a bit like Quantum Leap, where he never actually gets home. Spoilers. I think that's the only crossover we'd ever have between Jason the Wheel Warriors and Quantum Leap. <laughs> You're welcome. They've not got that much in common. <laughs> But yeah, it was like, it was cute and it was, it really did have this kind of, it's interesting that you say it was originally made in France because I remember it sort of having this slightly Japanimation type aesthetic to it. And, you know, there was lots of flying around in space and then there'd be a battle between the Monster Mines and the Lightning League and some of them were plants and some of them were kind of buzz saws and it was all just very kind of frenetic and exciting. I just loved it. Okay, well, you might never have had a wheeled warrior but I'm guessing you did actually have your next choice. Absolutely nothing I could find to do with it, not even the original advert, so here's a bit of nonsense stuck in instead. Okay, that was Partners in Crime doing Turtle Power live on the Smash It's Poll Winners Party. I've always wondered whether those people were the actual ones who sang on the record, but this isn't a Teenage Ninja Turtle at all. Becky, who or what was Tubby Turtle? Oh, Tubby Turtle. Tim, he was my favourite bath toy. This is something that I had for so long and touched and played with so much that I can still feel the feeling of the plastic under my fingers. You know when you just had those toys that were just so like, I was inseparable from this thing. Basically, he's a turtle and he was probably I don't know, about the size of a side plate for argument's sake. And he was green on one side and yellow on the other. And it was kind of hard plastic. And then he had little flippers which were sort of rubbery and and then a head that sort of popped out at the top. And basically, when you sort of scooped him through the water and scooped water up in him, and as the water came out of little holes in his shell and out of, like, the holes where his little flippers and his tail went in, his flippers would <laughs> flap and his head would sort of, like, bob up and down and, like, come in and out of his shell. He'd sort of go, like... Flap, 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 flap. Like he'd make a little noise, like as his little flippers would go. And he was made by Play School, and he was something ridiculous, like age naught to 36 months or something. And I was just completely obsessed. And I love Tubby Turtle so much, and I don't know where he's gone. He probably got mouldy and thrown out eventually through some sort of tear laced tantrum as mum sort of wrestled him out of my hands to finally put him in the bin because he'd gone completely gross. But I was just, I was just obsessed. Well, this 
so little evidence of it out there. I mean, the first thing is, I remember, it's obviously it was a bit too old, but I remember it existing because it was always in the catalogue. <laughs> yeah. In speech marks, when you've been looking through the toys, Tommy Turtle was always in there. It looked to me like you could demolish a factory. <laughs> Yeah, he was a sturdy boy. And if you want one, there's plenty for sale online where the description always seems to say has some water inside. Ew, oh, I don't you, want it. Get it out. <laughs> I mean, because like you couldn't, he definitely didn't sort of come apart. What would make sense is if mum or dad or a another carer could take Tubby Turtle apart gently, give him a little clean inside, but there was no doing that. So whatever was accumulating inside stayed there. Because obviously, this was at exactly the same time where I had like matey for example so it must all just be like matey suds and whatever you're washing off of like three year olds so like mud and jam I guess but then again matey you know if we thought Tuppy Turtle could demolish the factory matey looked like it could strip paint <laughs> so surely that would extinguish anything else that was trapped inside it well yeah true you would think that but no not in the end although he did last a very long time so matey maybe just like sort of put off the inevitable for a couple of years. It was actually pitched though. You know, obviously you adored it and it was meant for young children, but I remember being advertised more at parents, like kind of, this will make bath times a bit easier. It's <laughs> something to distract them. I'm not sure that it would necessarily work because surely the thing is, a child will either like a bath or not and saying, look, here's a huge, massive plastic turtle <laughs> would not change their overall reaction to being dunked in water. Yeah, I mean, I did always quite enjoy bath time I wasn't one of these like water shy kids I was getting the bath quite happily as I remember it so yeah you're probably right I don't think he was like the main lure but there is so little out there as you've mentioned it was manufactured by play school with a K you know because it was that bit cooler but I cannot pinpoint exactly when it was manufactured including there are different copyright dates given oh, out oh wow as in there's an actual copyright date stamped on him which seems to updated periodically the only one that's a photo of is 1989, but I'm convinced it was around before that. Yeah, I mean, he would have been. And I definitely had him when I was young, young. Yeah, it wasn't quite something you could play Jason the Wheel Warriors with. <laughs> no, exactly. And there was no way my parents were buying a tubby turtle for a seven-year-old. I mean, come on. But it is actually quite disturbing to look at him now because he's sort of spread eagle, <laughs> like flat on his back with a worried expression. Yeah, this was one thing. So he's got sort of these two, he's got these two big eyes, sort of big, like white eyes with nice dark black pupils and then his mouth sort of wiggles up and down so you can't quite tell if he's smiling or grimacing it's like when tom looks perturbed in tom and it jerry <laughs> Yeah, it is. So yeah, I mean, in my head, we were always having nice bath time together, but it's possible that he thought I was just trying to drown him. I think that's enough and you were best not going down. <laughs> really. Okay, well, we're moving on to your next choice, which I say it's enough and you were best not going down, but this, I've got to say, it's a lot darker than I remembered it being. Up, 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 up
Okay, that's the Hello Sunshine song from the Tale of the Bunny Picnic from 1986. Becky, what is going on here and why is it more disturbing than I thought? Oh my goodness, Tim, this film is a TV film, but I had it on VHS. So I didn't realise in my youthful ignorance when I first got it that this wasn't an enormous, you know, multiplex cinema release. Baffles to this day. But it was a TV movie. Jim Henson. So if anybody hasn't seen The Tale of the Bunny Picnic, but you have seen Muppet's Christmas Carol, the key figure in The Tale of the Bunny Picnic is Bean, who is, <laughs> he's a little bunny. And he is the one in Muppet's Christmas Carol that sings the Christmas carols outside of Michael Caine's Scrooge's counting house and gets the wreath thrown at him. And he's also the one that's kind of freezing later. And he's also the one that at the end goes and gets the giant turkey from the butchers. And he basically heads up this film, which is about a bunny picnic, which in the land of the bunnies is this huge sort of deal. And he is too small to be useful, basically. So he's got this bigger brother who's really, really mean to Bean. And he says, you're too little. You're far too little. You can't do anything. And all Bean wants to do is help. And so he sort of wanders off and finds the farmer's dog. Now, this is where things start getting really dark because when he comes back to where all the rabbits live, he kind of brings the dog with him. The dog like follows him and the dog lays ruin to the picnic and takes like some of the rabbits away, I think. And in the end, they end up creating this enormous dog-sized rabbit out. They like sew it out of bits of fabric and they all get in it like a Trojan horse. The plan is to defeat the dog, but in the end they all become friends, so it's fine. But it's quite dark and sinister. It really is, because basically the dog's being not quite because it's a Jim Henson production for children, so the dog isn't quite being maltreated into hunting the rabbits, but the farmer does not treat him very no, well. No, he's so He just mean wants rabbits so he can eat them and bullies the dog into, and the dog doesn't want to be doing it. That's what disturbed me the most. I mean, this is around the same time the Smiths did meet his murder, which, you know, admirable sentiment, but that song, every line, everything Morrissey says, you can just say, but it is. No, it's not. But this is a more convincing argument in favour of vegetarianism, I think. And I don't even think it was necessarily intended as well. No, and you're so right. Like, that is one of the things that I remember most vividly about it, is the dog who's supposed to be the kind of at the beginning, he's supposed to be like the big bad. But actually as soon as you see the farmer sort of interacting with it, he's like he puts his paws over his eyes and he kind of shakes and it turns out is it that he's actually afraid of rabbits or that he like becomes completely terrified by this giant rabbit it does look diseased to be fair yeah it's got like terrifying eyes and they're all sort of inside it and then as they start to topple it like moves in this really like almost like Sadaku or somebody from the ring like it sort of and it falls <laughs> but I do remember that as a child I used to love it so much when they finally defeat the mean farmer and he, he runs away and as he's running away his trousers fall down around his ankles and he sort of trips over them and falls and as a small kid that was like the funniest thing that I'd ever seen in my life please tell me they didn't eat him no Tim they all eat pickled parsnips 
So this is another big thing is like they have to get the pickled parsnips or somebody's forgotten the pickled parsnips. And I think it's Bean and that's why he gets into trouble and he's told that he's useless. Now, I have never come across a pickled parsnip in my child or adult life. I don't know if that's something that was invented exclusively for the tale of the bunny picnic, but pickled parsnips is not something that I have ever actually encountered to eat. I don't know if I would eat it if I encountered it, to be honest. (laughs) I'm wondering if you had the VHS of it, did it help? Because, I mean, this is from 1986. It was made by Jim Henson Associates. It was shown, I'm not quite sure about the American dates, but shown by the BBC over Easter in 1986. Then again at Christmas in 1986. It doesn't quite work in terms of, because it is kind of Easter special, essentially. But apparently when it was first shown on HBO, it had the live action introduction from Jim Henson, where he basically just says, well, I saw some rabbits one day, and I thought, what about rabbits, the film? Was that included? No, I don't remember that at all. But what it does open with, that you've actually just reminded me, there's like a wagon of like a travelling storyteller, and it turns out that in the end, this old rabbit that's going around telling the tale of the bunny picnic to all the baby bunnies, the old storyteller rabbit in the end is Bean, and so he's telling the story about his own adventure like oh my god I'm getting choked and it's one of those there's that very strange world of what I suppose you could call extracurricular Jim Henson productions things like Emma Totter's Jug Band which I don't really remember but a lot of people remember very fondly The Ghost of Fafner Hall which is a children's ITV thing from about I think about 1989 yeah, yeah I've and heard of that definitely surfaced, does it? and Mr Willoughby's Christmas Tree which I'm convinced existed but it had Robert Downey Jr <laughs> as a mark at the height of his cocaine binge era as a man who wanted the perfect Christmas tree oh my goodness none of these are on Disney Plus or anything which I assume is a rights issue thing like the storyteller apparently it's a rights issue yeah and that's actually what the start of the the Taylor Bunny Picnic really feels like and in fact I think the dog from the storyteller might be the dog in the Taylor the Bunny Picnic I'm not sure if they used exactly the same puppet but they're very similar it is fascinating that there is this whole Muppet universe but it's like a like it's like East Space out of Doctor Who it's like a pocket universe Mm. Of these things that are tenuously related to the main public yeah, franchise. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, the Muppet Cinematic Universe. It's a different MCU. Okay, well, speaking of dark things for children, moving on to your next choice now, which is something I'd never heard of, and as we'll come back to, something apparently the writer didn't want anyone to hear about. <laughs> rather bad news I'm afraid because we discovered this morning that over the weekend vandals broke into the Blue Peter Garden and caused rather a lot of damage. Okay again not really anything to use for a clip there so setting the tone really that's the Blue Peter presenter's reaction to discovering the garden being vandalised nothing to do with that. Becky what was in the garden of bad things? <laughs> that's the most amazing thing to try and illustrate this very niche children's poetry book. In the garden of bad things was a book that I had as a child and as we speak I'm literally holding it in my hand. Poems by Doug McLeod, pictures by Peter Thompson, published by Picture Puffins is what I can read on it. Now anybody who knows very much about me, you said at the top of the show that I'm a podcaster and writer and the main stuff that I write about is horror pop culture. So I do a lot of stuff about horror movies, obviously mine and Jill's podcast is about point horror books and I've always been a bit of a spooky baby I wonder sometimes 
sometimes if it is nominative determinism with my name being Becky Dark. I just wonder if I was always destined to just be a bit weird and spooky. This book definitely played into my spookier sort of tendencies as a small kid. And it's it's just a poetry book. It's a little paperback and it's got poems in it called things like Car Attack and Screaming and The Human Fly from Bendigo and Bad Fairy. And they're all about creepy kids, creepy things that happen to kids. There's one, for example, called Vampire Visit, which is the picture illustrating it is this very sort of sad, dour looking vampire looking through a kid's bedroom window and the kid lying there awake with a sort of wry smile on his face and a wooden stake in hand ready to greet this vampire. And I was just obsessed with it. I just read it over and over and over again. And around Halloween last year, I actually co-hosted some like campfire ghost stories in London and I didn't have a ghost story but I was able to recite from memory one of the poems from this book which is called Ethel Earl which is about a girl who was eaten by an escalator. Wow so that's like that public information film that used to freak everyone out about the girl whose doll got trapped in an escalator and they kind of ripped it free at the end. Yeah yeah. It's like that made into reality. Yes Absolutely. Except not made into reality. It's just a sort of terrifying cautionary tale. But yeah, the poem was about a little girl called Ethel Earl who'd ride the escalator and there she'd play till one sad day the escalator ate her. I'm actually quite speechless after that because this does really sound genuinely creepy. But I think part of the reason I had so much difficulty getting hold of anything from it is that Doug McLeod, as well as writing a lot of children's books, he was one of the biggest comedy TV writers in Australia who wrote a lot for sketch shows called Fast Forward and Full Frontal which we never really saw over here but you mention them to anyone from Australia they go almost into like a dreamlike trance <laughs> and also was one of the people behind Kath and Kim which I oh, really liked wow. oh my god I didn't know that but he also wrote loads of children's books with brilliant names like I love this Leon Stumble's Book of Stupid Fairy Tales <laughs> but on his website he referred to hating one of his books <gasps> And he said if he ever saw it in the charity shop, he bought that copy and destroyed no! it so it's out of circulation. Now, in his bibliography, where he's written fascinating background stuff on all of his books, the only one missing is in the Garden of Bad Things. So I assume it's, it's that. that one. I just can't imagine why you would hate it. They're brilliant. I did think, is it so old he's forgotten about it? But no, he's mentioned an earlier book on there called The Hippopotamus, which apparently John Cleese wrote to him saying, My daughter really enjoyed enjoyed this book so I think it is this I'm devastated well in that case why did he dislike it so much if you loved it I will say in balance the artist Dan Verkis I hope I'm saying that correctly cites this book as his main inspiration his main influence both visually and conceptually so it wasn't just you that it struck a chord with I'm so amazed I was just obsessed with it and hearing that about the charity shop thing I am so over the moon that I actually kept my copy because it's precious this is a precious thing to me but there was more of this tone in children's books around then I think it was a bit more accepted to go because this is a different kind of dark to Hilaire Belloc or even Roald Dahl yeah it's like you say it's like outright not quite horror but it's tinged with it things, is so. no it's overtly dark 
dark, even, you know, the illustrations. I've just opened it to the last page and the poem is called The Undertaker. And the poem is very short. It says, Upon a windy Wednesday night, the undertaker died. He built a box by candlelight and locked himself inside. And as he rode off in the hearse, he contemplated deeply. Though dying is a rotten curse, at least I've done it cheaply. And then the illustration on the opposite page is really quite creepy. It's got a sort of undertaker looking very pleased, actually, sort of flying out of a window. And so his top half is the undertaker's usual garb with like the top hat and tails. But then his bottom half is this sort of ghostly mist. And he's sort of flying away in front of this full moon in front of a sign that just says R.I.P. in the shape of a coffin. Like... Yeah, this is dark. It was kind of accepted then that there was that. I can't say all children love to be frightened. Some of them absolutely don't. But, you know, there are some who do like spooky things within reason. And there's more accepted around them. I mean, people always point to the Usborne Book of Ghosts, Mm. which is Mm -hmm. everywhere, which I never really liked because a lot of it read as a bit kind of false to me. But what I really loved was my sisters always had this comic called Misty. It's like spooky stories about, you know, girls who discovered they were descended from notorious witches and suddenly found they had witchy powers and that sort of thing and it was a bit more accepted then I think it would be not quite more sanitised now but a bit more there's a little bit more awareness of the audience as a whole I think rather than giving you know some children what they want and others what they definitely do not want. <laughs> yeah perhaps you're right I mean I don't have any kids of my own so I'm not much of a authority on the subject but I think in general I was podcasting earlier today about sexy monsters so you know things like vampires and sort of lovecrafty and tentacle monsters and that kind of thing and how horror can kind of give this opening to people to explore their darker sides of themselves and one of the things we were talking about during that conversation is how sexless Hollywood is now and I think to a certain extent the sort of spookier side of things can be sanitised as well and things are quite I don't know a bit puritanical maybe nowadays more certainly more so than in the 70s and 80s well then surely we could defy some kind of horror script about neo puritans <laughs> banning horror but it's secretly building up inside them yeah well absolutely well, this is the trouble you know you repress it too long and it all bursts out eventually okay well, moving on to your next choice now who bless him I don't think there was ever any horror bursting out of uh- <laughs> Okay, the very self-aware theme song there from Bucky O'Hare, which wasn't the original title, but that's what the BBC called it. But Becky, not Becky. <laughs> I can see that <laughs> happening more than once. <laughs> 
Well, we might even, we'll sidestep the potential of whether you've got a metal arm or not, but that's a different Bucky. Becky, who was Bucky? I finally got it right. Who was Bucky O'Hare? Bucky O'Hare was a space pirate. Him and his crew were members of, I don't know, like a pirate club, I guess, which the acronym or the, is now I never get this right, is it an acronym or an initialism? The initialism, I think, was S-P-A-C-E, space. And I had to look this up because obviously I was never going to remember this. This is incredible. Sentient protoplasm against colonial encroachment. You can see why they initialised it to space. So essentially it was another cartoon, again, a bit like Jason the Wheel Warriors. I was a obsessed with again as we will have just heard had an absolutely banging theme tune i am absolutely dumbfounded to learn that there were only 13 episodes because i feel like there were hundreds and hundreds of them but it was obviously that i just watched them hundreds and hundreds of times and as also you may have noticed from my love for taylor the bunny picnic and if you follow me on social media my handle being bunny dark i've always been obsessed with rabbits and so bucky o'hare was just perfect he's a space pirate Apparently it was based on comic books, but I never read the books or anything. I just watched these 13 cartoon episodes time and time again and learned the theme tune off by heart and used to sing it in the shower. I remember vividly singing it in the shower. Do you know who, although they didn't do the original comics, who produced the cartoon? I do not. Please tell me. It was Marvel Entertainment during that weird phase when obviously they'd launched this like multimedia company to do, you know, they did Spider-Man and his amazing friends and a couple of other early 80s cartoons then had that weird situation where they had this company to make cartoons based on their properties none of whom they own the rights oh my to. god amazing so that's when they did things like Muppet Babies tying into what we were talking about earlier Defenders of the Earth which was possibly slightly out of copyright 1920s and 30s comic strip characters made into a team and also this where they'd obviously thought Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came from underground comic and they were really big and they thought quick get this into production and what I think is interesting there is as you mentioned Bucky O'Hare is a big green rabbit yes. when Marvel did the Star Wars comic strip when Star Wars first came out one of the characters in that Jackson was a big green space rabbit right it was a bit piratical and obviously that was around the time they lost the rights to do the Star Wars strip and the Doctor Who strip and so on were they also thinking well we can't use our big green rabbits <laughs> anymore let's go for that one well I'm just looking down the list of characters now and oh my word firstly I'd forgotten that the name of their ship was the Righteous Indignation which is incredible and oh my god I'd completely forgotten this as well one of the characters who I think he was like he was the human he was like a kid in it his name was Willie Do It. <laughs> Which just There's also a dead, dead eye duck who literally has a dead eye. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dead eye duck because he had one dead eye. Just amazing. And there was a um, little android as well, and there was a lady. There was a lady bunny rabbit as well who would sort of turn up in it sort of now and again. And then there was a cat as well who was like the first mate. It was just oh god, I was just again, I was just obsessed with it. I loved it so much. Well, there were apparently I had no idea about this. There was a toy line tying in with it and they're all posed at weird angles they look like I could take your eye out is that what happened? Dead Eye Duck was originally just duck and somebody gave him the figure of himself <laughs> 
Maybe, yeah, and it sort of becomes this terrifying, self-fulfilling prophecy. So, yeah, I don't think those toys really took off. But like you say, the BBC showed it tons yeah. of times. Probably more than it was shown in America, I'd imagine. And it was around that time where, on Children's BBC, a lot of things were... Although they were for kids, they had a proper sci-fi story behind them. Because if you look at... There was Fantastic Max, which obviously was very child-orientated, but it had proper storylines about being in outer space. It was just about a punk toddler. <laughs> there was Space Vets, which is the live-action thing set on the HMS Dispensable. Obviously, there was Parallel 9, which is that bizarre... Oh, Saturday my God, I love Parallel 9. Set in, as Gabby Hutchinson Crouch called it on here, the prison for space yew trees. <laughs> and so it fitted in very well with that. And it was genuinely, for a couple of years, I think it was shown non-stop, and then it just disappeared. Yeah, but I tell you what, I never lost the theme tune. It's still up there. It does kind of refer to the fact that it's a theme tune as well which I wonder if that was because there have been as we mentioned all those very long power ballads explaining what happened in the show in great detail <laughs> if this was somebody who was kind of thinking I'm a bit bored of being asked to write them I'm gonna have a bit of fun with this and at one point he says I remember this is something oh my god I remember this so much the lyric is he's the funky fresh rabbit who will take care of it and my mum didn't think I said funky she thought I said something else and was like what did you just say? And I was like, no, 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 mum, it's fine. It's Bucky O'Hare. But that doesn't even, <laughs> that doesn't even make sense as a swear. <laughs> Parents do have that thing if they just think they've heard a swear word. They don't think about the syntax. No, absolutely. No, she definitely wasn't interested in, you know, the context around why I might have been saying it. But yeah, like I say, it has sort of just disappeared off the radar completely. Yeah. And again, you know, I'll mention it to people and they might sort of, you know, they might sort of squint their eyes and cast their minds back and sort of nod slightly and think like maybe yeah sort of it rings a bell but I can categorically tell you that nobody has ever raised Bucky O'Hare with me it's always been in the opposite direction okay well I'm guessing that might also be the case for your last choice which I mean I get asked a lot why certain chocolate bars haven't been covered on here yet the main one is the Spyro <gasps> this comes up quite a lot as well it happened as the train was pulling out they're after me gasp Guard this with your life. Well, I just had to know his secret. So I unwrapped it to reveal the most delicate strands of milk chocolate and oh, the feeling so light and smooth. I just had to. Actually, I finished it. Then. They're coming this way. He said. Where's my... I thought quickly. Well, any girl would have done the same, wouldn't they? You can't trust anyone to keep a secret. Okay, bizarrely Cold War themed out there, there for Roundtree's secret. I love these. Becky, I've tried describing uh, them and I'll come back to another description in a minute. How would you describe okay. them? Okay, milk chocolate. And the way that I imagine them being made is that there is a slow drizzle of milk chocolate coming out of a spout or something. And then they're like moving something underneath it. So you just get lots and lots of strands of milk chocolate kind of building like a basket, like a long tube basket of milk chocolate so that once it's ready to eat it's all like crunchy yum 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 and then in the middle through the middle of this crunchy stranded chocolate net basket thing is chocolate mousse like pale 
sticky chocolate mousse. And little Becky, with her chubby little fingers, used to get a secret bar and she used to bite one end off of it. And then she used to stick her chubby little finger into the space in between. And all of the oozy chocolate mousse stuff used to come out and like cover her hands. And then she'd have to like lick it off of her fingers and then eat the crunchy bit from the outside. It was catastrophe every single time. And I loved them. I absolutely adored them as well. And I remember I first heard about them when someone from school came in one day. Hello, Rachel, if you're listening and talked about this new chocolate bar where she said, and I quote, it's sort of like Milky Way on the inside, but the outside is like chocolate, but shredded wheat. Yes. Oh my God. But I remember thinking it was like chocolate flavoured shredded wheat thinking that doesn't sound very good. Shredded wheat. I'd be convinced to try one. And it was absolute bliss. That is the perfect. You should have got Rachel on instead of me because she has nailed it. It was like shredded wheat on the outside and in the middle it had like sticky Milky Way consistency chocolate mousse. Mm. And it was one of the very last of those because there was a thing in the 80s about chocolate bars. It wasn't enough that they would just launch one and say it's chocolate, you like it. There had to be. Almost like you're buying into a lifestyle or a concept. It was like I suppose the chocolate equivalent of Transformers although you couldn't make a, <laughs> have another chocolate bar out of them. But you look at things like Fuse, Maverick, Whisper, Pyramid, Spira. They were all these solid like wham, this is you. This is your lifestyle and this is a really hefty bar <laughs> with something really individual about it. Look at this new chocolate bar. It's time for you to make it your entire personality. I'm not sure I want to meet somebody whose entire personality was the Maverick. Bar. Oh my god, right. You've mentioned Fuse, Maverick and Spira aka my top three favourite chocolate bars of all time. Thanks for asking. Well Spira, like I say, that seems to be, I cannot understand why. It's not often they bring chocolate bars back. There's that weird thing in about 2000-ish where they brought back Aztec and Texan for a limited time which didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Eventually they brought Whisper back on a permanent basis basis but all of those they disappeared yeah. in the early 2000s they've never come back and i cannot understand why they were withdrawn i can't i can never understand why they were withdrawn and specifically with spira bars so a spira was you got two fingers already a bonus and it was the best crunchy version of just plain chocolate that you could possibly get so i personally enjoy my chocolate especially milk chocolate especially dairy milk chocolate to be like hard crunchy so I will put my chocolate especially if I get like Cadbury's Easter eggs and stuff I like a snack so I put it in the fridge you could do that with Spira without having to put it in the fridge and I don't know what they did to it to make it especially snappy but it was something to do with its weird spirally it was like a I don't know like a non-Euclidean thing like there was something about the physics of a Spira bar that made it especially snappy and that's what I loved about it and the chocolate itself seemed to me to be like you'd always imagine it'd be where you know in selection boxes they used to be I mean I'm sure there's a huge legal disclaimer now but there'd be a little white slip of paper saying something like paraphrasing here but due to the length of time these are on the shelves some marbling yes! will occur however the but product remains edible eat it kids stop moaning yeah. but it's like I always imagined that the chocolate would be like with some marbling and be thinking way and it never quite happened that way but Spira somehow nailed it it felt like almost dusty oh, in a way. so good and also you've just reminded me of Cadbury's Marble which was another favourite oh yes which yeah. had the sort of almost like Nutella in the middle of it and then it was like white and milk chocolate on the outside that 
that was yummy. And the fuse bar, that's complete. Nobody even seems to be like pining for the return. I, of I pine for fuse. I pine for fuse. Big time. My main one that I want brought back, though, and it has come up on here many times, is the pyramid. Not when they made it into a bar, but it was the proper pyramid. What was the pyramid situation, Tim? Did it have mint inside? Yeah, it was basically like a pyramid of After Eight. Oh, that sounds I do wonder if part of the reason they withdrew it was they weren't particularly offensive, but the adverts were kind of like gentlemen in fezzes doing the sun dance. Yeah. They could have just changed the advertising, though. They didn't have to kill your dreams by completely taking away your favourite <laughs> chocolate. I mean, I'll be fair. A lot of these bars, I imagine, you know, we have moved far in terms of technology and so on, but probably the expenditure and the manpower involved in creating <laughs> them may have outweighed the benefits when you can just brand everything as a variant of dairy milk which is what they do that now. is what they do now but they true. even sneakily try to call whisper part of the dairy milk um, family how dare you cabri i did not brought back mint whisper no i was never a fan of mint whisper the other one that is a bit like i assume pyramid is mint munchies have you had mint munchies because they're just like after eights and they are they're pretty good can you still get them i'm not sure you can probably get them for six pound a bag in your local hotel. <laughs> yeah probably you end up paying more for something to eat than you did to see the film <laughs> That is genuinely possible these days. You know, if you get a Super Saver ticket where it's like £5, you go to see, I don't know, Ticket to Paradise about two weeks after it came out. So you think, oh, could just do it with some popcorn on the way in. Suddenly it's twice the price of your actual admission. (laughs) And the thing about the Maverick bar is it's so weird that I think the last time that was mentioned in public anywhere was in the League of Gentlemen. Oh my goodness. some Maverick bars are stolen from a pop shop where the sons aren't paying attention. <laughs> but it just, it fits so perfectly that though. I don't know if they just chose it because the idea of the Maverick bar sort of amused them, but it's the sort of bar that would make sense in Royston Face. Oh yeah, absolutely. And they were very sort of easy to like slip up the sleeve of your school sweatshirt as well because they were quite diminutive. I think we've just lost that link between snacks and lifestyle though because if you even look at around the same time, I know they're still exist but frisps were originally sold it kind of had that weird sort of 20s barbershop quartet branding like you are one of the new sophisticated (laughs) oh my god you've just reminded me of something that i should have put on my list talking about new sophisticates and bar snacks do you remember brannigan's beer nuts I do. Oh yes, my god! Because it was Brannigan's crisps as well, which were ridiculous things like rosemary and mustard. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I think that's why Nobby's crisps happened because it was a bit like back to basics. Oh my god! Amazing. Brannigan's beer nuts—the saltiest things that have ever been made. I think like they probably gave a whole generation of Brits heart disease, and they were like, "We are going to have to take these." off of the market before the NHS crumbles. I mean, what do you think we can do practically to get the secret bar back? Or the Spyro, obviously. (sighs) I might just go and get some shredded wheat from the corner shop. What you should do is make one with shredded wheat and I don't know what we could use, like, sort of really hard nougat for the interior. Yeah, like milk. Like, send it anonymously to, I don't know, who's in charge of things. It'll be a different Prime Minister, a different chance of the Exchequer and so on, literally between us recording (laughs) this going out a couple of days later but whoever it is send it to one of them and say you're going to have to eat these continuously until the proper secret exactly yeah send yeah it like a bit like when mr bean tried to make twiglets by getting twigs and literally (laughs) dipping them in marmite 
until we get our proper secrets back, all you're allowed to eat is the insides of Milky Ways and some shredded wheat. No milk. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Becky has spoken. <laughs> Becky, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Tim, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Volume 2 by Tim Worthington, the story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org.